Christians love a good testimony. We love a good testimony. We love those dramatic stories of people who were lost in darkness, in the depths of their sin, and then hear the gospel and turn, and their life is completely new. And uh, the more dramatic the story, the better, right? So the, the drug addict who was, you know, all, all of these horrible things, who now loves Jesus is, is especially powerful and especially amazing for us. And it's, it's encouraging, too. Uh, I knew a guy in college who had a story like that. He told me uh, when we were in school together, he told me about uh, his former addiction to drugs How in high school, in the inner city of Chicago, he joined a gang, a really, really, really rough crowd, and got into all kinds of depravity and debauchery that you you can expect. But then, through the persistent Christian witness of his faithful grandmother who was praying for him and sharing the gospel with him again and again, he realized the emptiness of the life that he was chasing And he turned and left it all behind to follow Jesus. And so here he was. I got to know him. He was clean. He was a student at a Christian college. He was leading ministries. Everyone in our whole class knew his story because we loved his testimony. It was encouraging. It was inspiring. You want to know where he is today? He's walked away from the faith. He's embraced radical ideologies, he's married a Muslim woman, and he's returned to drug use. I am not the only one in this room who knows a story like that. There are parents here with children who once seemed to love Jesus and then one day walked away. Some of you have siblings who were raised in the same faithful Christian home you were, who heard the same gospel, sat in the same church services, maybe even were baptized, who today want nothing to do with the church or with Christ. Many of you, I would imagine, have friends you've sought to share the gospel with, and maybe they had an interest at one point, maybe they even said they believed at one point, but today they've completely abandoned it. Why? How how can two people hear the same message, even maybe visibly respond to it, and then in the end be completely different? One is changed forever, and one eventually falls away and rejects it. Why does the response to the gospel vary so much? Well, we'll get our answer, we'll get the answer in our passage today from Matthew 13. We're going to... We're going to see in this passage exactly that the fact that there are various responses to the gospel, and we'll see why. So, uh, we're starting a new section in our walk through Matthew's gospel. We're starting chapter 13 today, which is the first of Jesus' famous parables. If you meet someone who doesn't know anything about Jesus, maybe just a little of his teaching, there's a good chance they've heard about his parables. As Mike mentioned, we are taking a really big bite of text today. That's probably going to be true for the next several weeks uh, for several reasons. I mean, one, I mean, if I were to preach the parable and just give you a lesson in agriculture, and then next week Jared preaches and tells you what it means, it would be a little odd, right? Uh, So you'd be like, church was weird today. You just learned a lot about how seeds grow. Not sure what to do with that. Um, so that's, that's, that's the reason why there. These are kind of big sections that Jesus is, is teaching. Uh, but first, where have we been? Let's, let's get our bearings a little bit. Chapter 12, again and again and again and again, we saw Jesus coming into conflict with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders. And at the end of chapter 12, we saw kind of this dichotomy. Jesus' family members want to come in, and Jesus says, who are those who are my mother and brother and sister? They're those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. So he's, he's setting up this dichotomy that there's, there's his true family, and those who you would think by blood are his family, but not necessarily are. There's a contrast between those who believe and those who don't. 
And it is that very reality that Jesus illustrates in the parable today. So our parable has really three distinct sections in our passage here. The first section is just the parable itself. Jesus talks about a sower sowing seed. The second section is this kind of little aside Jesus gives to his disciples where he explains the purpose of his parables and he quotes Isaiah. And then the third section is where we get the explanation of this particular parable. We're going to do things a little different this morning. We're actually going to do it out of order. So first we're going to talk about the parable. Then we're going to jump to the third section, the explanation of the parable. And then we're going to get to what I think is Jesus' main point here, that middle section where he explains why he's teaching in parables. So let's go ahead. Let's dive into that first section, verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables. So Matthew is starting here by setting up the setting for us. He's telling us the the context, what's going on. First, he says it's the same day. He's connecting it with the passage Jared preached last week, right? So there's this contrast of insiders and outsiders, believers and unbelievers, and that's still fresh in Jesus' mind. It's the same day. Matthew also tells us that there are great crowds there. The important thing to realize with that is that this is a mixed audience. He's not just talking to Pharisees. He's not just talking to his disciples. He's talking to everyone. Everyone gets to hear this parable. And then Matthew tells us Jesus told them many things in parables. He's kind of setting up this whole section here in chapter 13. Uh, And at the start, as we dive into this new section with parables, I just want to take a moment and just kind of explain what that is. What what is a parable? It's not something that uh, we use much in our uh, own common uh, speech, uh, but it is common in uh, the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. So what, what is a parable? Very simply... Uh, the kind of shortest definition I can give is a parable is a provocative illustration. It's a provocative illustration. So it's, it's illustrating something. Uh, the word parable comes from two Greek words, para and bale, which together mean to, to put beside. So you're putting two things beside each other to illustrate, to, to see a comparison between two things. But... Uh, that first part of that definition I gave, it's, it's provocative. It's, it's supposed to provoke your mind. It's supposed to get you thinking. It's not a simple metaphor. It's not just one little thing that's related to one other little thing. There's depths to it. There's, there's depths to investigate. There's, there's layers of meaning buried in it that we, uh, we need to apply our minds to to, to see what he's doing. Uh, sometimes Jesus helpfully explains his parables. He does uh, for our passage today, but sometimes he doesn't. So all the more reason to dig in and see uh, what he's doing with uh, his, his comparison, with the illustration. What, what thoughts is it meant to provoke in our minds? Uh, and today we have what I think is almost certainly Jesus' most famous parable. Uh, raise your hand if, a uh, quick poll here, raise your hand if you know this as the parable of the sower. If, if growing up, that's what you have always called it, the parable of the sower. Wow, I'm getting hands like this. Thank, there we go. Thank you. Okay, that's probably the most common. Uh, raise your hand if you know this as the parable of the seed. Anybody? Okay. Two, maybe three hands. Okay. Uh, raise your hand if you know it as the parable of the soils. Wow, I see like two, three hands. That's the correct answer. Everyone else is wrong. Uh, Just so you know. Uh, I have always known it as the parable of the sower, but when you look at it and you read it, you realize it has literally nothing to do with the sower. The sower is kind of irrelevant to this. It is all about the soils. That is the focus of, of every detail, of every point Jesus is making here. It's about the soils. So in the parable, there are four kinds of soil. And we're just going to run through them quickly now. We're just going to note some of the details. Again, this won't be a lesson in agriculture uh, because we need to get to the explanation to see what Jesus does with these details. So uh, the end, or we'll start in verse 3 there. It's where Jesus starts with the parable of the soils. He says, 
or Matthew says, and he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Soil number one, the path. The seed that is sown on the path. What, what can we say about a path? Well, a path is a common place. It's, it's a place where people are regularly walking. It's, it's, uh, it's an exposed place. It's, it's not a good place for seed. Obviously, people are walking on the path, but particularly it's exposed to the birds of the air that, that see the seed and they can go devour it. So it's this common place that is exposed to dangers. Soil number two, the rocks. Verse five. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Okay, soil number two is the rocks, and the rocks are defined, the primary feature here is their lack of depth. Their lack of depth. It's just a thin layer of dirt with rocks beneath I lived in Lubbock for four years, and that's basically all of the ground in Lubbock. It's red dirt with thorns on top of it and rocks and, you know, a tiny little thin layer of what could be considered mildly comfortable soil. But that's uh, that's Lubbock. You, You know, good luck growing a garden. It's not a good place to grow things. And so what happens here with the seed that's sown on the rocks is it immediately looks good. It springs up. It's, it's even exciting. It's like, wow, what a good start. It's, it's surprising how well it starts off. But then, then the sun rises and it just gets scorched. And what I want you to notice about that is the sun rising is not a weird thing. That's a normal thing that happens every single day. It's not, it's not like, uh, you know, the soil, the seed was sown in the soil and then, you know, it got struck by lightning or a sharknado came and ripped it up or something, right? It's, uh, it's, it's something normal. It's the sun rose. It's not a surprise. And at that point, the shallowness of the soil, which was the very reason it sprang up in the first place, the shallowness of the soil betrayed it because it couldn't have a root. The soil was shallow and it withers away. It's a a painful image there. It it withers away. Just as it looked beautiful, it looked great at the start. Wow, it sprang up. Now it looks horrible. It's, It's withered. Soil number three, verse seven. Other seeds fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked them. This one's interesting because this one takes a little bit of time. Thorns start low, but here it says they grow up. They don't seem to be a problem at first, but then they grow up and they choke the plant. The, the slow but inevitable progression of time means that the thorns, they, 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 they steal the nutrients, the sun, the, the water out of the, so that the seed can't grow. It's a, it's a pretty brutal image. It's a death by strangulation. It's, it's choked. It's suffocated. That's what the thorns do. It, it takes, it's, they take their time. But make no mistake, they come and they choke out the seed. And then there's soil number four, the good soil. Verse 8. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain or fruit. Some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. If you want lawn care advice, Carl Brower is your man. Carl knows everything there is to know about taking care of a lawn. I watched a soccer game with Carl recently, and he literally only commented on how nice the grass on the field was. (laughs) He was regularly impressed with how nice the grass on the field was. This is a true story. Carl's not a sports guy, but Carl knows lawns. There's a lot of reasons you should go to Carl for lawn advice. He has all the gadgets and gizmos. He has all the knowledge. 
But the best reason to go to Carl for lawn advice, the best reason you could have is if you go to his house and you see his yard. You will say, wow. Whatever, how, how, does, how do I make this happen? Right? The, the fruit, what happens as a result of what he does is the proof that he knows what he's doing. And that's the focus of the good soil here. We get no information whatsoever about why the soil is good. It doesn't tell us, well, this soil, it was deep and it was well-tilled and all these kind of things. No, no, no. We know it's good because of the fruit. The results, that, like the thorns, also take time, but that do come. The results, the product, is what shows this is good soil. So the rocky soil sprang up at first. It looked good, but it didn't last. The thorny soil looked okay, and then with time, the thorns choked it. But here, the fruit comes with time, but it still comes. You might say that the proof is in the produce. It's what comes from it. But also look at this. It's, it's very explicitly clear here. The, the point is not the amount of fruit. It's about the presence of any fruit at all. Jesus says, some bear a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. It's all good soil. How do you know? Because there's fruit. doesn't matter if there's 100, 60, or 30. It doesn't matter how much. What matters is if there is fruit, that's the proof that it is good soil. That's our, that's our parable this morning. And then Jesus says something in verse 9 you, you probably think is filler. He says, he who has ears, let him hear. That's not filler. He's actually leading into his main point, which, again, we'll get to in a little bit here. But he's saying some have ears to hear and some don't. And then verse 10 gives us an audience change. What happens in verse 10? Okay, then the disciples came to him and they said, why do you speak to them in parables? So we're going to get to this middle section in a a little bit after we look at the parable's explanation. But I just want you to notice right now, the audience has shifted. It is no longer the mixed crowds. It is no longer believers and unbelievers. The words Jesus says from here on out, he only speaks to those who are his, to his disciples. They're the only ones who get the parable's explanation. We'll talk about why again in a bit, but let's let's jump to that third section in the passage, the parable explained. What does this parable mean? Verse 18, Jesus says, hear then the parable of the sower. He's going to tell us what it's about. And he starts off in verse 19 by giving us a key to understanding the parable. To unlock it, he says, you need to know what the seed is. Verse 19, the seed is the word of the kingdom. The seed is the word of the kingdom. In other words, we are talking about the gospel. The central message of Christianity, this message that is about Jesus, this king who who rules the cosmos, who is in complete control of everything, who is on his throne, who came down to the earth to live among sinners, to preach his message, and ultimately to lay down his life by bringing sinners, or lay down his life in order to bring sinners into his kingdom. It's this message of a king who loves those that should not, that don't deserve his love. And yet he pours out his life and lays down it for them. And as we, as we work through Matthew's gospel, we're going to see that's the message of this whole book. Jesus is, is marching towards the cross where he will lay down his life for his people. It's the message that this whole book, the Bible, is about. It is the central message of Christianity, this message of the gospel, the word of the kingdom. So what happens when the gospel goes out? What happens when the seed of Christ's kingdom is scattered around the world? There are four possible responses. First, when the word of the kingdom goes out, some are deceived. They're snatched up by the devil. Verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. 
So Jesus here, he starts unpacking the metaphor, unpacking the parable for us. So the birds that came and devoured the seed on the path, the birds are the evil one, the devil, who snatched the gospel away. That's the devil's tactic, to to snatch away the truth and to replace it with deception, with lies. That's the way he works in the world. There are those who are deceived away from the gospel. And remember, this is the seed on the path. This is the seed on the path. It is the normal route most take. Where most people are walking, you might think of it as the mainstream. It's exposed to the work of the evil one. I talked about this a few weeks ago, but the Bible is clear again and again that Apart from Christ, the whole world, since Genesis 3, since the beginning of uh, when sin entered the world, the whole world has been under the sway of the evil one. The devil, he, he rules the world in opposition to Christ and his lies, his twisting, his deception and rejection of the truth is what most people will follow. It is the path, it is the main stream, it is the broad path that Jesus talked about. Now throughout history, the devil has always been doing that, but his lies change a little bit with every generation. He doesn't doesn't care so much about the the logical coherence or the, the consistency across time. He simply cares that he snatches away the gospel and replaces it with lies. So how does he do that today? A few years ago, I would have said his main tactic was something like equating love with tolerance. Equating love with tolerance. You've, you've probably heard that. You can't love someone if you don't tolerate and, and accept them. Uh, I think actually that's changed to something more extreme in recent years. The, the mainstream idea now is not just that love is tolerance. It's that love is celebration. It is an inherent acceptance of absolutely everything about someone. That's the whole point of of June now in our culture, Pride Month, because the only right thing to do is to celebrate. Civil disagreement isn't an option. You must celebrate. That's that's a common idea in in our culture. And the problem is that it undermines a central truth of the gospel. The devil wants to snatch away truths of the gospel and replace them with things that sound maybe similar, like love is love. That's great. Sure. Okay. That's an obvious statement. But the gospel is about love, but a love that persists despite disagreement, despite opposition, despite conflict. The gospel is about the love of God coming against sinners who were rejected to him. It doesn't doesn't paper over sin. In fact, the love of God is so serious it goes to the cross to pay for sin. It does not celebrate our sin. It does not celebrate just the way we are because authenticity is the only thing that matters. No, the love that the gospel is all about comes towards us and convicts us of our sin. It exposes the sin in our hearts so that we can know the true freedom of forgiveness and life in him. That's the love of God in the gospel. So friends, with this first soil, I, I hope you hear Jesus' warning. I hope you hear his warning. There's an enemy at work trying to pluck away the truth of the gospel from you. And there's a good chance, there's a good chance he's done his work if you find yourself swimming with the crowd in the cultural mainstream. The the broad path is the path all the way back in Matthew chapter 7 that Jesus warned us about that leads to destruction. The devil does not care which side he knocks you off the narrow path. As long as you're on the broad path, he's happy and there are many who walk it. So, brothers and sisters, be warned. Some are deceived. The second possible response to the gospel we see here is the second soil. Some are shallow. Some are shallow. Verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground... 
This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Oh, it's, it's sad. The first soil is sad. It's sad to see someone deceived by the lies of the enemy that many, many times run rampant in our world. But this, this soil is probably the most painful to watch. There are some who hear the gospel and they seem, it looks like they receive it with joy. There's an immediate positive response, like the guy I knew in college. It looked great. It looked like the gospel took root. Maybe there's tears over sin. Maybe they're, 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 they start talking about a turning point in their life. Maybe they, they start speaking the Christianese language, right? Where they're, they're saying, yeah, I was like this and now I'm like this. And, and they have a spring in their step that just seems to shout, now I really do love Jesus. But when trouble comes, they're out. It doesn't last. For whatever reason, one day, they walk away. And we're left watching them with tears on our own eyes, just wondering what went wrong, and wondering, did they ever really believe what happened? It sure looked real. Now, there is a, a theological question there, and the Bible is clear. Genuine faith lasts. We'll get to this in a little bit, but it it produces fruit. Genuine faith in Christ always lasts. So it is true of those who appear to believe and then walk away. It is true they never believed. There can be a moral reformation of the mind. There can be new deeds of the hands, but if there is no true delight in the heart, no true faith in Jesus, it will eventually fail. The Apostle John, he he experienced this in his own church that he pastored. One of the apostles of Christ experienced this. 1 John 2, verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. How do I know that? For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Of us, He's saying very clearly, regardless of what it looked like, they did not truly belong to our church. They did not truly belong among us because they didn't truly believe the gospel. It looked like they did. We thought they did. But in the end, when they walked away, it proved that they never did. But but what what was wrong? Why did they seem to have joy at the start and then walk away? Well, the parable is, is clear. It's because they never had depth. They never had anything more than, than just shallow soil. I want to be careful here. I, I, certainly as I stand on the stage of this pulpit, I, I don't want to uh, have a habit by any means of, of bashing other churches. But there is a problem in our world, particularly in our nation, a sad reality where many churches actually prefer shallowness over depth. They, they, there's an intentionality to choose that way. Well, why, why would they do that? Well, because it's easy to win people to something shallow. You get a visible response. It springs up with joy. That's easy to do. It's hard to win people to depth. We could, we could manufacture an experience here at Parkway that, that every Sunday left you feeling happy. You, you walk out and you're just inspired and excited and you think Jesus is just great. It's not hard to do. And many churches have chosen that option. The flashing lights and inspiring message and a, a positive experience can always draw a crowd. And you'd think the numbers, the, the immediate results, the responses 
would vindicate that approach. It, it sure looks, look at the responses. All these people are going. It must be great. But listen to me. The shallowness itself, which created the immediate response, the shallowness itself is the reason they will not last. The shallowness is both the reason for the immediate response and the reason they will fall away. The seed sprang up because of the shallowness, but it also had no root. Again, I'm, I'm not here looking for a, a chest bump about how awesome Parkway is. But we don't want to win you to something shallow, church. We don't want to win you to something shallow with positive messages that uplift you for a day. We want depth in your faith. Not some inspiration, but a deep, profound grasp of the biblical truth that will last a lifetime. Shallowness, is, it's, it's like an adult eating baby food. Right? It, it, it won't sustain you. It won't give you the, the nutrients that you need. When your body is put to the test, you will not stand. We don't want to feed you baby food. We want to feed you meat so that, so that you have strength when the tough days come. And the tough days will come. Remember, Jesus equates, equates trials with the rising of the sun. That's, that's where that metaphor connects. Trials are the rising of the sun. It's normal. You can expect it. Tough days will come. You can bank on that. And shallow faith, shallow teaching only gives joy when times are easy. It will only give you joy when times are easy, but a shallow faith is no help at all for you on the day you bury someone you love. A shallow faith is no, will not sustain you in a world full of fear and pain and very real problems. A shallow faith will dissolve like dead grass when the fires of persecution burn, and they will burn. The Bible makes this clear again and again. So church, do, do not be satisfied with shallowness. Do not be satisfied. It won't last. It is a, a quick hit of happiness that does more damage in the end. Remember, the plant looked great at first, sprung up, joyful, and then it withered. I don't want that for a single one of you. You need depth or you will wither. Third soil, verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. So some are deceived away from the word. Some only receive a, a shallow version of it. And as we see here, sometimes the word is crowded out by lesser things. Two weeks ago, I, I, I said part of fighting sin in your life is being filled with Jesus. Uh, I said the, the root of sin can't grow when the soil is already full of him. But unfortunately, the opposite is also true. The gospel cannot grow in the soil of your life if it's crowded out by worldly loves. There, there are similarities here between the first soil and, uh, and, and this one. Both are deceived, but it's, it's a different kind of, of deception. The first one is more about, about doctrine, what you think, what you believe. This one's more about desires. It's a lesson to us. You can go wrong both in what you think and what you love. This soil is full of the cares of the world. Jesus gives one specific example, money. The Bible says a lot about money. Money. 
One of the important things you've probably heard before, the Bible never says money is evil. It says the love of money is evil. So that, that's a, a love that, that, the, that like thorns grow up. It may start small. It may seem to not really be a problem. But if it grows up, it will choke out the seed of the gospel. It has this inevitable, this slow but inevitable power to choke out the word of God. It's like Grima Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings. Many of you know I'm a Lord of the Rings nerd. He's, he's whispering in the king's ear, offering advice, off, saying, off, claiming to help, t- claiming to take away the problems when he's poisoning him and taking everything from him. Money makes a lot of promises when you're in love with it. Just relax. I'll deal with this. I'll, I'll deal with the bills. I'll deal with your stress. It's going to be just fine. I'll take care of it. And then it takes you. It takes time, but it is no less deadly. Remember, the thorns choked the seeds. They, they, they suffocated it. The love of wealth in the world will choke out a love for Jesus in your heart, so beware. And notice the end here. It says, it proves unfruitful. That's every response we've seen so far. It proves unfruitful until we get to this last one, verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, and understands it. That's an important word. We'll come back to that. He hears the word and understands it. He, he indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, and another 60, and in another 30. This is the true believer, the one who hears the word and understands it. And that's, that's going to be an important word, as I said, up in the middle section when we get there, because that's all about those who understand The word, it's not just this intellectual knowledge, it gets to the nature of real faith. But notice here, the the good soil bears fruit. That's how you know it's good soil, is it bears fruit. It's the proof. You need Carl's lawn advice, because his lawn is amazing. The proof is in the produce. The fruit proves the reality of the soil. So fruit is what happens when genuine faith in the gospel exists, when it's really there. There there is no x-ray machine that can scan someone and we find out if the Holy Spirit is really in their heart or not. That doesn't exist. But the fruit is what, what, what happens as a result of the presence of the Spirit inside genuine Christians over time. It's this external, visible evidence of an internal, invisible change that has happened. So you don't see the seed doing anything when it goes into the soil, but it is growing. And you know that when it pops up and gives fruit. Now, the New Testament gives us several kinds of fruit that prove the reality of our faith. None of these things save us. I want to make that extremely clear. None of these things save us, but they are evidence They are proof, they are fruit of the salvation God has worked in our hearts. And the primary example in the New Testament is simply just personal holiness. So most famously in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. This is a common metaphor throughout the scriptures, the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit, when the Spirit's really in there, this is what happens. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It may take time, but with time, those things inevitably are produced. The fruit comes if the soil is good. Another fruit the Bible talks about is our works, our obedience to God. As James says, someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. Listen to this. And I will show you my faith by my works. It's the faith that saves, but it's the works that prove the faith is real. It's this visible evidence of an invisible 
reality. One final fruit the Bible talks about is that real, genuine believers in Jesus love their fellow Christians. They love their fellow Christians. Jesus says this in the upper room before he goes to the cross. By this they will know you're my disciples. You have love for one another. First John, John was in that room hearing Jesus say that and he repeats it. He says, by this it is evident, that's a key word, it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness, that's the fruit of personal holiness, they're not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Love for the family of God, those who God has knit you together with, is a fruit, uh, an inevitable but real result of faith in Christ. These are just some of the, the biblical examples that the Bible talks about other fruit that proves the word of Christ has really taken root and grown. But some of you right now are feeling discouraged. Some of you right now, you feel like your life doesn't have enough fruit. You haven't produced how you'd like to. Maybe I, I read this list, I talk about personal holiness and obedience to God and, and loving your fellow Christians and you're like, I'm not where I want to be by any means. And there's something good in that. If you, if you don't see any fruit, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, he says, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. You should. I mean, there should, there's a warning here. If, if, if your life looks the same 20 years after your conversion, that's a concerning fact. But I also want you to hear right now very clearly the point is never the amount of fruit. Jesus is clear. Some will produce a hundredfold, some 60, some 30, and that's okay. The question is, is there any fruit at all? And no, remember, it takes time. If you got converted last year, I'd be really surprised if we saw any fruit in your life right now. It's hard to see. And in my own life, I'm I'm prone to feeling unfruitful, but this is why we need each other. This is why we need our brothers and sisters in Christ, especially in our church. Because I have, I have brothers in my life who help me see fruit that I don't see. When I'm discouraged and, and frustrated, I have friends who will say, you know what, you're, you're more patient with your kids lately. You weren't like that four years ago. Praise God. You, you're, you're more gentle in your speech. You used to really be like ready to, to fight and argue. And you're softer and more gentle than I've ever seen you. And I don't see that change right away. But by God's grace, faithful friends point these things out. And so don't play the comparison game with this church. But surround yourself with brothers and sisters who can look at the fruit and encourage you. And you focus on digging deep into Jesus and letting him bear fruit in you. Don't worry if someone seems to have more fruit than you, than you have or you don't, you're not where you want to be. Just keep digging into him and let him bear fruit. All right. Now we come to that middle section of the passage that we've skipped. The purpose of the parables. The preaching of the gospel has always and will always bear various responses. We've seen that, but what makes the difference? When I was in seminary, I had a, a class where we, we studied this parable, actually the, the, the parallel account in Mark 4, and we talked in the class about how to apply its message. And one student in the class, he was a, a friend of mine, he was a good guy, I liked him, I don't mean to beat up on him here, but he said, I think to apply this, we need to say, work hard to become the good soil. Work hard to become the good soil. That was, that was his application. Be good soil. What's wrong with that? I mean, first of all, it's, it's pretty unhelpful. It's pretty unhelpful. The passage literally says zero things about how to be good soil. That's pretty unhelpful. But far worse, the far bigger problem is that that statement really means work hard to become the kind of person Jesus can save. 
make yourself able to receive the gospel. And that's not, that's not just unhelpful, that's hopeless. That's hopeless. It, and it's the very antithesis of the gospel. The gospel was about God's kingdom being born in the hearts of those dead in their sins. Dead people can't make themselves good soil. Dead people can't work hard to get to a place where Jesus can then save them. So why did my friend say that? Well, we, we pressed him on it. And he said, I'm an Arminian, so I can't say God is the one who makes you a Christian. I think it's your choice. And that is the opposite of what Jesus teaches here. So fair warning, we have to dive into some theologically deep waters for the next few minutes. We need to talk about the doctrine of election, about predestination, which falls under this constellation of doctrines known as Calvinism, Reformed theology, doctrines of grace. I'm just giving you all the names so you know what I'm talking about. Uh, in full disclosure, at the Parkway Church, our statement of faith, our, all of our elders, our entire staff, we are all Calvinists. We are all convinced of the doctrine I'm about to uh, teach and preach to you uh, right now. Uh, we tell you that in every membership class. We say, here's how we understand the doctrines of grace. Uh, you do not have to believe in Calvinism to be a member, but you will hear it from the pulpit. And today is one of those days. So, when I say Calvinism, I would guess there are probably three responses in the room. Some of you are salivating. You are so excited. This stuff is red meat. You just love Reformed theology. Let's go, right? That's some of you. Some of you are the opposite, and you're thinking about walking out right now. Maybe you think Calvinism is anti-evangelism. Uh, maybe, maybe you think it's about worshiping John Calvin. Or it's, it's just for preachers with big beards dressed like lumberjacks. Right? That's, that's Calvinism. And the rest of you, I would imagine, are operating at some level of uncertainty. And that's great. That's fine. Maybe you've, you've heard about it. You're not quite sure. I, I think, I know Parkway's in that kind of camp. Uh, I'm not quite sure what to do with all this stuff. It's complicated and, and hard to understand. So you, maybe that's where you're at. Or maybe you're like, I've never heard of Calvinism. What is this guy talking about? That's great too. Well, wherever you're at, let me just encourage you. Let's just look at the Bible together. Let me just invite you. Let's, let's receive what Jesus teaches here. And then we can step back and talk more and I'll unpack the doctrines of, of grace a little more. So remember back in verses 9 through 10, Jesus invites those with ears to hear him. And then the disciples and only the disciples, they come to him and they ask for an explanation, right? That was the setup to our, our middle passage. So already we're seeing illustrated that there are, there are some things, in fact, the most important things, that Jesus only gives to those who are his. And that's exactly the point he makes very clearly in verse 11. And he answered them. So they asked their question. This is the first thing Jesus says. He answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. To you, disciples, it has been given. To them, not disciples, crowds, it has not been given. You see what Jesus is, is doing? He's saying there's a you and there's a them. There's, there's this difference. There, there's these two groups of people. And what, what defines their difference is the disciples have been given the kingdom. It's been given to them. They didn't give it to themselves. It's been given to them. Now that, that verb in both English and in Greek, is the, it's in the passive voice. And, and oftentimes I've pointed this out in the past, so I won't bore you with another Greek grammar lesson. But when you, when you come to a verb like that, usually the, the New Testament writer, his point is saying God is the one who does it. If it's in the passive voice, God is the one who gives. 
And that's clearly what Jesus is saying here. God has given the secret of the kingdom to the followers of Jesus. They don't give themselves the kingdom. He is sovereign. He is in charge. He determines who receives the seed and understands it. In fact, verse 12 shows us he's sovereign from start to finish. He says, for to the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. And, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus is, is, is saying, if you have the secret of the kingdom of heaven, if God's kingdom has been born in you, that seed will grow. You will have more and have an abundance. The seed of the gospel will grow. But if you don't have it, if you have not been given the kingdom, even what you have, whatever false growth that exists, like the one that sprang up and withered, even what you have will be taken away. It won't last. Even the, the joy you feel because you think you believe will be taken because one day you will wither under trial. And then verse 13, Jesus continues probably the most direct answer to their question. He says, this is why. So for that reason, because of the, this, this insider, outsider, some are given the kingdom, some are not reality. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing, they do not see. Hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. Remember, the good soil is the one that receives the word and understands it. They understand it. Jesus is saying there are, there are two kinds of seeing and two kinds of hearing, two kinds of, of actual perception with your mind. You can get the auditory input in your ears. You can get the visual input in your eyes. You can get the intellectual input in your brain and not really understand and then he quotes Isaiah 6, and he says it's been fulfilled. Look at this. So verse 14, indeed, in their case, those who have not believed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. See the two kinds there? For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear. Their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus loves this passage from Isaiah 6 because he quotes it a lot. He quotes it here, he quotes it in Mark 4, he quotes it in Luke 8, he quotes it in John chapter 12. And every single time he quotes it, the context of that passage is he is explaining why some believe and receive the gospel and some reject it. This is his answer. God is sovereign over the response. He has given the gift of faith to some, but not to all. See, Isaiah, the prophet, back in Isaiah 6, is, is where he gets his commission. And he was told, before he even went out and preached his message, he's still in the throne room of, throne room of God. And God tells him, you're going to go out and you're going to preach my message. And guess what? Zero responses are going to happen. How about that for a preaching commission? Go preach. No one will believe your message. That's, that is the task God gave Isaiah. Not simply because God knew their responses, because he commanded it. Because God is sovereign from start to finish. He is the one who gives eyes to see, who gives ears to hear, who gives a heart to understand. And he does not give it to all. I became a believer when I was 15 years old. At that point in my life, I had heard the gospel. I'd been in Bible studies. I'd been in church. But I'd never really, really heard. I'd never really seen. I'd never really understood. But when I was 15, I heard the gospel. And I believed. Something clicked. Not because the speaker was 
so exciting and compelling and interesting or, or, or so convincing in the way he presented the gospel. Not because there were, there were there's the arguments were better than I'd ever heard. Not because I was smarter and I finally figured it out. But because God was pleased to give the gift of faith. God gave me ears to hear because of his grace. So why do some receive the gospel and some don't? Because God in his infinite wisdom and his infinite power has chosen to give the gift of faith to some. Now I realize that is not a popular idea. It, is, it has a level of, of theological controversy to it. John Calvin himself knew that. But he believed, is it controversial, was not the most important question. He believed, is it biblical, was the most important question. So here's, here's what John Calvin himself says. Our, this is when he begins talking about predestination. He says, our first aim must be to know only the doctrine of predestination as it is set out in God's word. Calvin does not want you to be a Calvinist. He wants you to believe the Bible. So is this biblical? Well, first, we should just say, Jesus is making this point by quoting the Bible. So it's like double biblical. But we can look at a few other passages. Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his, not our, of his will. Romans 9, the whole chapter is about this, but I'll give you one verse. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And what's the basis of the election? How does God make the decision? Is it because believers are so great? Have we made ourselves good soil? No, no, no. Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you're the fewest of all peoples. He's saying there, there was no reason. Why did he set his love on you and choose you? Oh, simple. Because the Lord loves you. It's, it's in his will. It, del, it delighted him to set his love on you, Christian. It goes back to the sovereignty of God. In the words of Christian rapper Shailen, who I've been known to quote, backed by popular demand, he says this in a song called Election. It's how God has always operated. He's the greatest fam. His amazing plan made his hand, saved the man Abraham from a pagan land. Who can argue with the people God chooses? Israel, not Egypt. Peter and not Judas. Humanly speaking, it should have been Saul and not David. The inheritance should have been Esau's, not Jacob's. The truth, it speaks brightly so you can see rightly a huge, mighty God who chooses the least likely. We are the clay. We've been formed by the potter. None can come to the son unless they're drawn by the father. Now, I know, I know some of you probably still have questions, and that's, that's totally fine. We welcome those. We, we don't ever want to be bullies about the doctrine of election here. If you want to talk through any of that, we are happy to do it. It is a difficult doctrine, but it is a biblical doctrine. And I want you to know it is a glorious doctrine. It's wonderful. Jesus looks at his disciples after this teaching he gives them. And look at what he says. He looks at his true followers. Verse 16, he says, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is what angry Calvinists get wrong. The doctrines of grace are not some trinkets to fight over. They're sweet waters to drink from. 
Look at, look at the word Jesus uses. He says, blessed are you. Now, again, that shows us. That's, that's a, it's in the, the passive voice. It's something God does. God blesses. You are blessed if God does this. But, I mean, the word blessed just, just points our hearts to the wonders of this truth. And the reason we call them the doctrines of grace is because that's what it's about. Unimaginable, undeserved, incredible, unbelievable grace. That God looked at you, Christian, and he did not see a single good reason to love you, and yet he loved you. There was nothing you could offer. You loved your sin, but he chose you and he brought you to life. What grace, what a blessing that is. And so as we wrap up our time here, I just want to give a few exhortations. The first is that one I just gave. Just be amazed at this beautiful doctrine. But three things, just in light of this whole parable. So I guess it's four. So it's three, I'm going to give you three more. Three, in light of this whole parable that Jesus gives us, three exhortations to you, church. First, sow the seed. Sow the seed. One of the common critiques of Calvinism is that this theology means you, you shouldn't bother preaching the gospel, right? If God has his elect already picked from the foundation of the world, it doesn't make sense for us to go preaching. Uh, which, it's worth noting, some of the most significant evangelists in church history were Calvinists. Calvin himself, Geneva, his church, pumped out missionaries like you would not believe. He saw no, uh, no contradiction. But more importantly, Jesus sees no contradiction. And this passage, which centers around the sovereignty of God over salvation, he describes an indiscriminate sower. And the sower's not going, is this, is this good soil? Should I put, oh, that looks a little thorny. Let's not put it there. No, no, no. He's sowing the seed everywhere. He knows God's in charge of the response. He's just sowing the seed. That's the first, sow the seed. Second response, second exhortation, church. Don't be surprised by various responses. As you sow the seed in the world, you will see these responses. You will see people who, who joyfully seem to believe and then walk away. You'll see people who angrily reject it, snatched up by the evil one. You will, see every, you will see shallowness. You will see every kind of response. And by God's grace, you will see faith. But just don't be surprised. Jesus said it would happen. So sow the seed. Don't be surprised by various responses. Third, church, finally, trust the Lord of the harvest. Trust the Lord of the harvest. I want you, church, I want you to live in the freedom this passage gives us the freedom of, of sowing the seed and then just trusting God. Those you love and you pray for who, are, who aren't walking with Jesus, keep loving them. Keep praying for them. Keep sowing. But know the freedom that you are not finally responsible for the results. It doesn't depend on you. That will crush you if you think you have to say exactly the right words. You have to be just perfectly compelling and you have to have the, the perfect witness or the perfect life before them. You will never have that. So it's good news it doesn't depend on you. If you have a wayward child, parents, it doesn't mean you failed as a parent. If you have a friend who rejects the gospel you share, doesn't mean you did something wrong or you messed it up somehow. Faith is a gift you cannot give, but you know the one who can. And even when it seems hopeless, you have no idea what God might be doing under the ground. As Charles Bridges, an old English pastor, once said, the seed may lie under the clods until we do. And only then spring forth for the harvest. God is sovereign. The response is in his hands. So trust him. Let's pray. God, your ways are great and they are full of grace. 
Father, if, if ultimately salvation was in our hands, heaven would be empty for eternity. Because we are dead sinners who did not love you. And yet you set your love on us and you awoken a love in our hearts that was not there. In grace, it pleased you, God, to give this gift. And I pray we would steward it faithfully, joyfully, that we would never be angry as we, uh, as we consider the, the beautiful, amazing truths of your word, but God, that we would be faithful and wise and then we would sow the seed. We would, we would see responses and not be surprised and we would above all and always trust the Lord of the harvest. Do that in us, we pray. Amen.